can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's 1991. I'm nine. New Kids on the Block is my favorite band. I am the proud owner of a trapper keeper and a pocket rocker. And I'm sitting at my rickety school desk that's got to be 800 years old and watching the hands on the clock above my teacher's head tick in slow motion, inching toward noon. Finally, the bell rings. The doors open, and out of every classroom, a wild, screeching herd of children heads to the lunchroom. Lunchtime was the best, worst time of the day. Best, because duh, gossip and snacks. Worst, because I always still felt hungry when it was over. I usually had homemade lunches, brown paper bags filled with foil-wrapped chicken breast sandwiches. But oh man, sometimes I would get to take part in the school's Pizza Tuesdays. The plastic wrap that enveloped each rectangular foil-encased slice steamed with condensation, like the backseat of a high schooler's car. But instead of forbidden makeouts inside, there was something better. Cheese. Oh man, I love that cheese. And the little globs of translucent orange fat that formed heavenly little pools in the three measly pepperoni lily pads that floated on top of it. My cheese lust was only overshadowed by my shame. I remember looking down at my empty rectangular foil tray, still hungry, just like I was on most days at the end of lunchtime. And thinking, why isn't this enough food? What is wrong with me? Even back then, I knew I was supposed to want less food than I did. I knew I was supposed to feel full sooner. I looked to some of my classmates who would eat a few bites and then throw out the rest. What was their secret? As an adult who is now raising fur babies, two very hungry Netherland dwarf rabbits named Lulu and John Candy, I ask on behalf of my little kid self, why was there never enough food? 
Why wasn't I ever encouraged to eat until I was full? Why was I so ashamed of something as natural and innocent as my appetite? I want to introduce you to someone who has some pretty amazing thoughts on these types of questions. My friend, Dr. Jennifer Brady. I wish you were here to eat this jam with me. I know. It's so good. I'm going to send you some of this jam. I make it. <gasps> oh my gosh. Holy mollegers. I can't wait. <laughs> Hold on. Let me finish chewing. <laughs> I am mm. not offended by talking with food in your mouth. <laughs> Jennifer is a freaking dietitian with a PhD an assistant professor of applied human nutrition at Mount St. Vincent University in Nova Scotia. And she's a mom of two kids. She studies the history of home economics and the roles of health professionals in social justice. Jen's educational background kind of makes her the ultimate expert on nutrition. She knows what she's talking about. But what truly amazes me about Jen is that she has a very simple prescription for our culture's issues with food. What healthy eating looks like is eating a variety of foods and, you know, filling up your tummy. That's that's it. I mean, uh, filling up your tummy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is how we should all live with respect to food. You know, when we when we're thinking about what healthy eating is. And and I would also say that that's an evidence-based way of understanding what healthy food is. I mean, I don't think we really need anything more complex than that. Clapping. Beyond laying down culture-smashing wisdom, I learned that Jen loves croissants. And because she's a home ec queen, she put together a whole spread of croissant accompaniments for our call. Let me first preface this by saying that I love eating with my fingers. I love eating with my hands. So I've got a bunch of picky hand things. Um, I have carrots. I have some pickles that I've made. Um, I make a lot of pickles and jam. So I have some eggplant pickles. I have some gherkins. Uh, <laughs> I love gherkins and I have some jam that I save only for croissants, which is like a pear and cocoa nib jam. Gosh. (laughs) The croissant is central though. (laughs) Pear and cocoa nib jam. That sounds really Mm. magical. When you, so when you told me that you'd chosen the croissant, I immediately began searching, as you know, all over San Francisco for the croissant of my dreams. And when I shared this with you, you shared with me your croissant philosophy, which I love, which is there's only good and better. And, <laughs> and I true. felt that through my whole entire body when I read your email that said that. And, um, and I knew you weren't just talking about croissants. I mean, mm. I just sort of felt like, so anyway, um, Yesterday, I went out and I was like, okay, I'm going to get croissants um, in preparation for the interview. And I entered a little bit of, I decided to call it Crinception, which is croissant plus inception. Uh, It was a little (laughs) bit of a croissant time looping situation where I would buy a croissant and then I would eat the croissant because it was completely irresistibly delicious looking. Right. And then I would have to go buy another one and be like, this one is really the one for tomorrow. 
Gotcha. And then I would eat that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a fun. I was like, oh my God, this could go on forever. Like I could just be in this loop forever. And like, what a fantastic loop it would be in. Should we partake? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my first bite. Mm. I'm gonna try and make it a loud crunch. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh, oh my god. god. Oh, I, it's so good. Oh. I'm feeling that. It sounds so good. <laughs> mm. Yum. I'm like enjoying my fingers getting mm. shiny oh, yeah. butter. It's like one of my favorite feelings. You can lick that butter off your fingers now. Mm. Okay, so tell me about the significance of the croissant. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I in some levels, it's just delicious. And so it's significant just for that reason. I mean, I think mm. it's a food that is just about pleasure for me, which is a huge part of eating that I try to be really conscious about. We don't take time to savor and we're so focused on health and nutrition and eating for a purpose that isn't about just loving it and and tasting it and the textures and the sensuality of eating. And Mm. croissants, to me, like... It's the pleasure part. It's the using your body or being in your body in a way that allows you to experience all the wonderful, joyous uh, things that come with having a body. I mean, whether that be eating, whether that be uh, going for a run, whether that be, you know, feeling wind in your hair, whether that be having sex, making love. That's all wrapped up and and having a body. And that's the beautiful thing of having a body. And diet culture, I think, really fucks that up for, for us. And it really teaches us to hate our bodies. Doesn't diet culture ever get tired of ruining people's lives? Answer, no. Jennifer has done lots of research into the grandmothers of her profession. From early dietitians to the women who founded Home Economics. Her work takes us from the science of dietetics to the movement for food justice today. And her journey began when she was just a kid. I was a fat kid growing up, and that was, you know, like it is for many kids, a source of bullying, not just from peers, but from my parents as well, Um, from teachers, really from everyone around me, even people that I trusted and, you know, were meant to take care of me and and love me. What really was a turning point for me in getting more deeply invested in dieting and um, disordered eating was uh, I broke up with a uh, someone I had been with. It was a pretty significant relationship, broke up um, with them and just sort of fell into something that was already deep, like deeply ingrained in my relationship with food because of my childhood. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if I've completely pulled that apart yet. I feel like it's something that I'm, I continue to learn about how that happened and why that happened and how I feel about it now. Um, so I was struggling with an eating disorder, although I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at the time because I was so 
it was like there was two two parts of me. One that um, did uh, was sort of engaged in disordered eating, bulimia in particular, and was binging and purging. And then another part of me that almost didn't even know that other side. It was like the, I was so split from my body. But I will say what I what I do know for sure is that um, going into dietetics after that experience only made it worse. Dietetics is a field that studies the effects of food on health. We've heard the terms dietitian and nutritionist, but until recently, I didn't know that there's a pretty big difference. It takes a lot to be able to use the term dietitian, years of education, and then a formal internship. When you become a dietitian, you're a credentialed healthcare provider. On the other hand, there are no credentials required to become a nutritionist. Jen went down the dietetics path. She was first drawn to it because she was interested in both science and in food. But she found that the process of becoming a dietitian impacted her relationship with her body. Becoming a dietitian made me more heavily invested in controlling my body. It's not just the learning. It's not just the um, what we learn in dietetics about, you know, quote unquote, obesity and and weight management and all of and all of that um, that we imagine dietitians' roles to be, but it was just even the culture of the profession is so very toxic, and particularly toxic in terms of relationships with food and bodies and eating. And uh, you know, it's not random that dietitians, based on the research, dietitians struggle with eating disorders. There's some research showing that. Uh, there's a particularly high uh, prevalence of eating disorders among dietitians, and that that's not random, right? I think a lot of people um, think of dietitians as sort of experts in eating, experts of food, and yeah. you're saying that there's this really toxic culture. I would love to hear more about you know what that was like. Well, I mean, first of all, in dietetics, the the sort of view of food is a very, you know, as something that you can understand through the nutrient components, through um, the calories per gram, through the, you know, the vitamins and minerals that are contained in that food. And, you know, I think that that stuff is important. However, you, there's a, there's an aspect of becoming a dietitian or becoming a professional that is an embodied experience and is a is one of shifting your personal identity, and so when you're learning about a you know body weight and quote unquote obesity in that way, it you take that on and internalize it. It's not just about becoming a dietitian, earning a credential, and sort of carving out a career, but looking like a dietitian is about is not about science, of course. <laughs> looking like a dietitian is about whiteness. It's about femininity. It's about, um, yeah, white supremacy. It's about capitalism. It's about all of these other things that have come to mark the culture of the profession. You know the drill by now, rebel eaters. Let's break this diet culture poop garbage down. 
As we've learned from other Rebel Eaters Club guests, the world of medicine and healthcare, just like every other part of our society, is steeped in fat phobia. That includes dietetics and nutrition. The people who enter those fields end up facing a lot of pressure to stick to the status quo. If they have their own issues with restriction or disordered eating, they will likely not be encouraged to interrogate them because the thin ideal is still the standard of ultimate well-being in pretty much every health profession. Sometimes going into these fields can even create issues with food. There are rad examples of people like Jennifer who are pushing back, but they face a lot of resistance. We even heard Dr. Janet Tomoyama talk about this in the second episode. This is all part of a cycle that keeps things the way they are. Just for the record, you don't need to be thin in order to be a dietitian. We can interrupt this poop garbage cocktail by naming it when we see it, by hiring fat nutritionists, and advocating for weight-neutral practices in educational environments. There's another dimension of dietetics and nutrition that has played an important role in its history, and that's gender. Over 90% of dietitians are women. This is in part because we have culturally associated food with care work and care work with women for a really long time. Back in the mid-1800s, there was one particular group of smart women who thought if they could legitimize care work, women might be able to finally get more power. These women were the mothers of dietetics and the founders of home economics. You know, most people, when you say home economics, they think of their grade seven experience of home economics, you know, sewing pencil cases and making muffins. And we could chuckle and say, oh yeah, that's so silly, you know, baking muffins and sewing pencil cases. But those are the survival skills of life. You know, knowing how to sew on a button or mend a shirt and to provide food for yourself and others that you love and take care of is really important and really valuable work, but it's often not valued by society. And so home economics in large part was about politicizing and valuing domestic labor as the labor that literally runs society. A lot of the women that were um, advancing these ideas at the time were largely disenfranchised. They had no access to higher education uh, for the most part and uh, no access to financial independence. You know, women involved in home economics were fighting for access to some of those things and for basic education for women who were tasked with running households um, with some with some basic knowledge to be able to do their jobs uh, and to and for those jobs to be valued. Imagine the power of saying, yes, what I do is work and should be legitimized in a culture that for the most part didn't believe that women were even worth educating. In the 1800s, home economics wasn't a class you took in seventh grade. It was a movement. Here are some of the things women were in charge of back then. Dealing with sewage, 
there was no city government managing sewage back then. Figuring out what to do with garbage. No garbage trucks. And taking care of people who were sick because medicine still had a long way to go. Quote unquote, women's work included managing things that were matters of public health before that was really a thing. In 1841, an early advocate of home economics, Catherine Beecher, sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, published a treatise on domestic economy for the use of young ladies at home and at school. It was about the importance of women's roles in society, a spicy subject at the time. In those days, science and reason were seen as the realms of men. A woman's place was the emotional realm and taking care of the home. But Beecher's book turned that on its head. It showed how young women could bring a scientific approach to their duties in the home. Now, Catherine Beecher wasn't exactly arguing for equality. She agreed that women belonged in the home. But she was saying that women should be educated in the sciences that applied to their work in the home. It opened the door for women to pursue higher education, be taken seriously, and get paid. Ellen Swallow Richards is considered the founder of the home economics movement, and she took it a step farther. She believed that home economics had the power to liberate women. If science could help make women's work more efficient, they could have more time to pursue other things, like, dare I say, smashing the patriarchy? Pretty fucking cool, actually. One of the things that people don't know about home economics was it also wasn't just about cooking and sewing. Uh, Home economics had a really well-developed theoretical but also practical knowledge base around a variety of different things. Um, Finance, like personal finance, you know, how to to budget. Um, And It was also about design and architecture. They were thinking about reproductive rights. They were doing Mm. advocacy around reproductive rights and women's rights throughout the sort of, uh, you know, what we understand as being the second wave of feminism. So um, uh, anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I love this stuff because it's so, to me, it's just like all these really important threads weave together. In the context of the time, home economics was radical. But looking back at it from where we sit today, the movement had some of the very same challenges we still see in mainstream feminism. First, there were many different factions that wanted different things. Second, the movement was made up of white middle-class women, and that meant that the progress they created ended up only being available to other white middle-class women. So yeah, the push for home economics was flawed. But this movement is also part of the reason I got to grow up in a culture where women have careers and get to go to college. After the break, we're going to take a look at how my college years landed me right in the middle of a food fight. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. We are back. Like I said in the last episode, I lived in Berkeley after I moved away from home. I was learning how to fit into a new community, one that was much wealthier and whiter than the one I grew up in. I noticed that good food was a core way of relating. Good food meant something very specific, not just flavorful or worthy of seconds, but also local, quote-unquote clean, and definitely not from a fast food restaurant. I was proud to know the names of famous foodies like Michael Pollan and Alice Waters. It made me feel like I belonged. And honestly, like I'd earned access to an exclusive club full of people who I suspected were better than me. I remember going to lectures where sustainable food advocates would point to fat people as the ultimate evidence of global food system failure. I was deep in diet culture, and I didn't think twice about what these smart, reputable, well-dressed, usually men, were saying about people like me. They didn't relate to food the way my family had raised me to. This fight over the future of food wasn't just about what you ate. It was about who you were, good or bad, clean or dirty, healthy or ill, thin or fat. Sure, foodie culture celebrates eating, but there are still BS rules about who gets to enjoy food and how. I think the pleasure of food also needs to be understood as a pol- as political. If at one point it was about eating right, uh, which meant, you know, controlling your weight and eating for health, we we just shift the goalposts. So now it's about pleasure and affording certain things and um, putting on airs and the pretense of eating, uh, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I like eating with my fingers, because I think it, for me, I... I feel like it 
it rejects and maybe I'm overselling it, but I don't, I don't feel like. You're not. You're not. Go, go. I'm ready. (laughs) For me, it's also a political act in that, you know, you can, uh, it's, it's rejects that pretense of eating with the sort of, you know, middle-class ideals, I guess, of, uh, using the certain fork and using the certain knife, sucking on your fingers, sucking sauce off your fingers, to me is both pleasure and politics. Right? Like, I mean, I remember moving to San Francisco and learning that people eat pizza with a knife and a no. fork. Oh, no. Um, and just kind of, I was just like, I don't, I can't. I mean, for me, eating with my fingers is sort of saying like, I want to get my hands dirty. I do not want to be a person who is completely just like separated from the butter and the grease and the oil and the tomato sauce or or whatever it is. Like, how did it end up on my elbow? Um, There's (laughs) something like so beautiful about that. Yeah, exactly. And I think eating pizza with a knife and fork is the epitome of that sort of middle class uh, disconnection with with our food and with our bodies as well. And then the the application of those rules of who's in, who's out, who knows what they're supposed to be doing with food. And that's like this marker of, of class and status. I have to say that if you eat pizza with a knife and fork, we do not hate you. I promise. I name-checked this practice, though, because the first time I saw it, I immediately felt this downpour of shame. Oh, God, I've been eating pizza like a caveman my whole life. And honestly, there are many food practices and behaviors that are sort of meant to elicit that response. They draw a line between the distinguished and everyone else. Like, think of how many spoons and forks there are at the table setting of a fancy restaurant. Insider knowledge is required to navigate the utensil situation. I remember being at a restaurant a few years ago and not remembering how to pronounce the French word for fries. Frites or frites? 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 My palms were drenched. And if you didn't grow up going to restaurants with a wine list, like, you have no idea why a waiter might bring you a tiny glass, pour wine into it, and then just stand there while you drink it like a perv. Jennifer has all sorts of ideas about what fat-positive, equal opportunity, and more fun food culture would look like. I mean, I think it's a world where... uh not to simplify it, but I think it's a world where we don't eat pizza with a knife and a fork, where we, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> where we eat with our fingers, engaging with food and touching our food and uh, feeling our bodies as part of that. But it's a way that um, joy and pleasure can be inclusive and can be something that you don't need to have a lot of money to do. There's no rules that we can expand our thinking about what pleasure, but also meaning. Like for me, what is healthy about food, when I when I think about what healthy means, it's what brings joy and pleasure and meaning to someone's life. And so I think, you know, in, in thinking about a world that has food justice, it's similar. It's about a world where the production of food is meaningful for people and isn't oppressive. You know, we don't have 
migrant workers uh, who are taken advantage of to produce the cheap food that North Americans have come to demand, um, but that also we can all take joy and pleasure in food in whatever ways that means to people. And I, I think on one side, that's a really vague and open description um, or almost a non-answer, but I think that's where we need to get. The really open, fluid way of being with food. Does that make sense? Mm, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Like what we need is fewer singular answers. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Complexity, nuance, intuition. Okay. So I kind of want to ask how your, I mean, I, I see you as a fat positive feminist, Mm. you know, in this space doing incredible work. Um, I'm curious about what this looks like as a mom, Like, how does Uh, this, I mean, oh my God, like the parenting food conversation is its own 10 hour mini series narrated by uh, David Attenborough. But, um, (laughs) but like, you know, (laughs) what does it look like for you as a mom? Oh, it's so fraught. So my daughter's nine and I have a son uh, who's six. When my daughter, when we lived back in Ontario, Um, I would give my daughter, like I do still, a variety of different foods in her lunch. Uh, You know, everything from apples to chips to a sandwich to yogurt to, you know, cookies or cake or whatever, and trusting her to make decisions around what she puts in her body at recess or lunch or or whatever and when she's hungry. Well, the school was not having that. So the school, um, on a number of occasions, told her that she couldn't eat, you know, the the treat that I'd given her, or she had to save it until the end of the day. Wow. And then the lunch monitors were taking food out of kids' lunch bags, like the you know, so-called unhealthy food. And so I talked to the principal and the vice principals about why that is totally unacceptable for them to be taking food away from kids, but also to be teaching kids that you know, they can't trust their bodies to know when they're hungry or what they're hungry for. You know, so once in a while I can pull out the dietitian card. And so that is an, an instance where I did pull a bit of rank with expertise and say, listen, you know, I've got a PhD in this. You, you know, don't you dare take food out of my kid's lunch bag again. Um, oh. I think I'm particularly attuned to this with my daughter, partly because of the ways that diet culture I think is particularly cruel to women's bodies. But I think also because I do see so much of myself in my daughter as well. You know, she's a big kid as I was. And uh, it just brings back for me the bullying uh, that I experienced as a kid. And, um, you know, it breaks my heart to know that I'm sure she's also experiencing that. And one of the ways that that came out is on her sixth birthday, she asked me if she was thin and Mm. I didn't know how to respond to that. You know, she's not thin, but there's bullying happening in her environment around weight. There's fat phobia in her environment. How do I respond with, no, you're not thin. And that is perfectly normal. And that is that your body is perfect just the way it is. And sometimes I don't know if I, if I get it right, but you know, I, who knows? <laughs> There's all this mother guilt too, you know, that adds to it. So yeah, it's just fraught. It's just a constant battle. 
Oh, I mean, yes, I can imagine. I mean, it, it's it's interesting for me as someone who is not sure if she wants to be a mother. Like one of the questions mm. that comes up is like, what does it mean to bring a little fat brown baby into mm. this world? Just knowing that they'll, I mean, the likelihood that they'll be traumatized, the likelihood that I won't know how to navigate these things. Mm. Um, it's just like, I mean, it's just so much. And I, I think like that, that absolutely, that preemptive, like even as sort of just thinking about it, I have preemptive mother guilt. Um, and, and, but I mean, I, I think like there's, yeah. I think there's something really beautiful in what you're talking about, which is like this, I mean, there's so much going on. It's like, you know, you're doing the work of justice. You're going in there and you're being a dissenting voice. And that's so powerful in the school. But I think from an individual perspective, it's like that beautiful capacity to reparent yourself mm, um, on yeah. some level. And and I think that like for, for, um, for parents who are fat positive, who are trying to teach their children that all food is good food, that they can trust their bodies, right? Like, I think, I think that that work is about repair, you know, for ourselves mm-hmm. as well. And I'm sort I'm sort of curious, do you have like some simple frameworks or, um, or rules or sort of policies or mottos that, that you have in your household around food? Uh, well, I mean, you kind of said it, all food is healthy food. Like all food is good food. Um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, often say in response when they come home with the, oh no, that's not healthy because they learn that at school. I, I try to impress upon them that what healthy eating looks like is eating a variety of foods and, you know, filling up your tummy. That's, that's it. I mean, Mm, filling up your tummy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that is how we should all live with respect to food. You know, when we, when we're thinking about what healthy eating is and, and I would also say that that's an evidence-based way of understanding what healthy food is. And I don't think we really need anything more complex than that. However, I would say that like going back to something I said earlier, I do think that nutrition science and and more, you know, the the sort of complexity of what healthy eating that nutrition science gives us is important in some instances. You know, for example, for a celiac uh, who can't eat gluten, nutrition science has been immensely important. But for most of us, what healthy eating looks like is just that, eat a variety of foods, and, you know, to your hunger cues, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think like for me, it's like, you know, how do we up the pleasure um, on eating? And then how do we lower the stakes for everyone on eating as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. My last question is, what's your recipe for the change we need to see? Alternatively, in the change we need to see soup, what ingredient are you bringing? Oh, that is a good <laughs> question. My goodness. Okay, so the change that we need to see. Um, okay, the ingredient that I bring, I think, is um, what I value about myself, actually, and about the opportunities and experiences I've had is that respect for what science can do for us, but also that valuing of science only being important insofar as it allows us to advance justice or advance Mm. love and advance dignity, you know? Oh, (laughs) 
like, wow, I just love that. Oh, my God. Science in service of love, dignity, and justice? Absolutely. Like, it's like, right? Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was so amazing. Um, fill your tummy and also science in service of justice, love. These are the takeaways. Oh, my God. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on Rebel oh, Eaters Club. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> I, I love this. I want to do this more often. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, thank you for um, enjoying delicious croissants. Mm, and, um, and you're amazing. We've talked a lot about science and medicine this season. Talking with Jen, I realized that for most of my life, I haven't felt there was any option besides do whatever my doctor and the culture says or reject it all outright. That's the thing about being fat or a woman or any marginalized person. You've learned again and again that the people you're supposed to trust don't know how to give you what you need. And it's so hard to find a third path an accessible path forward that gives you the facts you need without the ideological trash you don't. I crave that third path, full of dignity and autonomy. The idea that the rules of nutrition could be simple. The idea that science shouldn't exist if it's not in service to love and justice. That is the medicine we need. I want to go back to that lunchroom story I told you, and I want to rewrite it together. In this version, I'm still dying for the bell to ring. Since we're dreaming big here, new kids on the blocks crooner Joey McIntyre is my boyfriend. Joey and I run hand in hand to the lunchroom. It's Pizza Tuesday, and I get in line for my steamy slice. The lunch lady, Miss Vanessa, asks, how hungry are you today? And I yell with complete joy, very hungry, Miss Vanessa. She laughs, pats her tummy, which is as round as mine, and says, eat as much as you want. Rebel Eaters Club is produced by Transmitter Media. Our lead producer is Jordan Bailey. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Sarah Nix edits the show, and our executive producer is Greta Cohn. And I'm your host, Virgie Tovar. Ben Shano is our mix engineer. Special kudos to James T. Green, Jessica Glazer, and Mitchell Johnson for the production assist. And Taka Yasuzawa, who wrote some of the music we use in the show. If you love Rebel Eaters Club, tell your friends and share the love by writing a review on your favorite podcast app. See you next week.